Everyone is looking for purpose, for a life that matters, and we want to be a church that helps people find that. This is the Collective Church Podcast from a life-giving and vibrant new church right here in London, Ontario. Here's this past week's message from our pastor, Tyler Fromm. Well, good morning and welcome to Collective Church. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the lead pastors. I get to lead alongside of my wife, Lee. We're glad that you are with us. Uh, for the mothers, the mothers-to-be, the spiritual mothers, happy Mother's Day. We appreciate you. We're in a series called The Way of Jesus, and so we're working through the Gospel of Luke together, and so there's some pieces of this that I think connect to Mother's Day, but much of it is for us as Jesus followers. I want to spend some time and I want to reframe failure for us. I want to reframe what failure actually means. And I want to let us know, for those of us who would call ourselves Jesus followers, that failure isn't when we try and we don't get the results that we want. That's not failure. Failure is when we don't try. Failure is not if we don't get all the results that we hope to get or some external sense of success. Failure is if we simply sit on our hands and wait for something to happen. I want to remind those of us that are Christ followers, that are Christians, that follow the way of Jesus, we don't avoid risk. And when it comes to stepping out in faith, there is risk involved. We don't avoid risk. We avoid avoiding risk. That's important for us to understand as Christians. We, as Christians, get the opportunity to walk toward the things that terrify us, knowing that we do it step in step, hand in hand with the creator of the universe. We don't avoid the things that scare us. We step toward them as God invites us to go. And I want to spend some time looking at God's, at Jesus's guidance to us. And the title that we're using for the message, and I don't typically talk about it, is is how not to waste your life. The invitation that Jesus gives us on what does it look like to not waste my life. And I want to look at a parable, a parable in Luke. And if you're reasonably familiar with the church or reasonably familiar with the Bible, you might hear this parable and go, "That, that sounds like another parable I know. This is slightly different, and there's enough that's different in it that it's important that we understand what's unique about it. We have four different accounts that we call Gospels of the life, ministry, and, and, and death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are certain times that there are, gospel, or there are parables or stories in different Gospels, and oftentimes they have slightly different details to emphasize certain things. We have four authors all pointing people to Jesus, all writing to speak of Jesus, but all with slightly different perspectives speaking the same truth. Before we dig into this parable, I would love for us to pray. God, I pray that in these moments that you would be the one that speaks. God, if we are walking in with baggage or challenge or difficulty, we don't, we don't come here and pretend like it doesn't exist or leave it at the door. God, we lay it at your feet. We need you. I pray that you would speak through me, that your words would be the words that we hear. God, if there are things distracting us even right now, I pray that you would quiet those things and that your still small voice would be louder still. 
that you would cut through the noise and speak directly to us. You see each one of us. You have beautiful plans and purposes for every single one of us. And regardless, regardless of our experience with you, God, you want to draw us closer. God, we love you. We trust you. God, I need you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at Luke 19, verse 11 to 27, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Verse 11 says this, The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said, and because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, so he's telling a story, A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not want him to be our king. Okay, so Jesus is telling this story. It's a parable. Jesus uses parables, these stories that draw us in to understand what he's trying to say, and they're multi Laird. So he's telling this story about a nobleman, about a nobleman that is set to become king by going to a distant land. And before he goes, he gives some people, he gives some people some resources. He splits up these 10 pounds of silver. He gives each person a pound of silver, and he's expecting them to take what they've been given and invest it. And he also tells us that there were some people at that time that hated the king that hated the future king, that hated him and did not want him to be their king. Okay, so this story that Jesus is telling, and there's a degree that you're like, what, what, is, what, is, the, what, is, the, what is he trying to say? Which is what the crowd of people would have been thinking. The beautiful thing about a parable is it does, it causes us to reflect and mull around in our mind and go, okay, what does this mean? So to give you some early context of this, this nobleman who is set to become king is Jesus. Jesus is speaking about himself. He is the one who is going to be crowned the king. In fact, he was on his way to Jerusalem for that, to be crowned the king of the Jews. And even mockingly on the cross, the king of the Jews, but he was, this was his coronation. So he's speaking about himself. And... We know that there's people in the story that hated this future king. There were people that hated Jesus. There were people that did not want Jesus to be their king. That was the people that rejected him in that moment. And it's people that still reject him today. And so in real time, at this moment, Jesus is on his way to go to Jerusalem to be crowned king. And on one just really basic level... There is this invitation for those of us who are Jesus followers or those of us that are maybe on the fence to ask the question, is Jesus king? See, we talk about as Christians a lot about God's kingdom, his rule and his reign. God has a plan for the whole earth and he has things set a way that he wants them to be and we get to be part of bringing God's kingdom here on earth. There's this idea of now and not yet. The kingdom has come and yet the kingdom is coming. Jesus is the king of that kingdom. And so as Christians, we surrender to him, his lordship, and we say, you are my king. 
And then there's this other group of people, and there have been times that we're like that or areas in our life that you go, I don't want you to be in control of me. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want to live in your kingdom. I want to enjoy the kingdom without the king. And if we are Christians, if we follow Jesus, we are responsible for partnering with Jesus in bringing that kingdom. We are responsible for identifying his plans, his purposes, and partnering with him as he brings that in our midst. And just like the nobleman who gave the servants resources, Jesus gives each of us gifts. He gives each of us a mission to take part in. He gives us a responsibility to take what we've been given and invest it. And so the servants in Jesus' parable have been given gifts and tasked with investing what they've been given. And in verse 15, after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. Now, at first glance, you're like, wow, okay, he's just talking about money. And that is a component. There is a reality that each of us have been given money and we've been tasked as Christians to invest it well, to partner with God and what he's up to. But it's so much more than that. See, this is the beautiful thing about parables, is that parables have the surface level you read and a little deeper and a little deeper. And you're constantly looking and you see how many facets there are. And so, yeah, there's a degree that there's this conversation around money, but it's more than that. What we've been given is not just money. Three of the servants that have been given money have been highlighted here. And so the king is coming back to check in. He's been coronated as the king, and he's coming to see, how did it go? I gave you resources. I gave you gifts. How did you invest what I've asked you to invest? And what's really interesting here is that this king has been gone for a length of time. And there's some beauty in even the symbolism of that. So he's left, and it's almost like he's left just long enough to see what's actually in the hearts of the servants that he's left. Like, what's actually driving them? Do they actually want to follow me? Are they actually willing to do what I asked them to do? And the first servant reported, Master, I invested your money, and I made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. Okay, so the first, the first servant took what they were given and they multiplied it by 10. 10x on their investment. 10 times return on what they were given. A 900% increase. Now notice even the word that he, the king uses, and we have to keep it in our mind that this king is Jesus. He says, you have been faithful. That word is significant, faithful. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. So the second servant multiplied their gift by five times. 5x return on investment. And whether it's ten times or five times, if you're the king and you set a group of people to do something, return on investment, to invest what you've given them, and you got 10 times your profit or five times your profit, you would be really happy, right? You'd be looking at that, and it's not like you'd compare and go like, well, one, did ten, one only did five. You're going, this is amazing. I, I trusted them, and they 
were faithful with what I gave them. And so, so far, so good. But then there's a third servant. And the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I am a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvest crops I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Jesus is so brilliant in how he tells stories and how he invites us into this story. Because if Jesus is the king, those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers are the servants. And so he's letting us know that as the king, he's given each one of us a gift. That he's given us, he's gifted things to us to use, to invest and to see a return on investment. And in this case, it's financial. But for all of us, he also gives us talents and giftings, unique things that make us who we are, and he expects us to use those and invest them. We have purpose in our very DNA. God has plans for us. Jesus has things set out for us that he tasks us with, and he gives us the resources to do it. God gives each one of us unique contributions. Each one of us are a unique part of a whole. If we would call ourselves Jesus followers, we're part of a body, each of us with different roles in that body. Jesus is the head, everyone else, just body. But all of us work together and use what we bring to do something significant, what he is inviting us to do. God has work to be done here on earth, and he invites us through Jesus to partner with him. But he's reminding the people that, he's listen, that are listening to him, and he's reminding us that he doesn't simply just give us those gifts to admire them, to look at them, to enjoy them on our own. Instead, he gives us these gifts to use them to advance his work and see a return on investment. He's given us a gift, and he's given us a mission. And like the king, Jesus is coming back to check in, to see how are you handling what I've been giving you. I've given you some gifts, and he's going, how's that going? And we're left with this response of going, honestly, how's that going? And that's why I pointed out even this idea that he, he leaves, the king leaves long enough to expose what's really in the heart of his, of his subjects, his servants. And I think that Jesus does that with us. That there are times that he gives us things and then he gives us time and he sees, how are you going to respond? Even when we look at this, at this uh, story, we see three different servants so he gave money to 10 servants, but we see three servants that are highlighted, and they have two different responses, risk or fear. The first two servants, they risked investing the money. This was risky. 
They didn't simply look at their gift. They didn't look at what they had been given. They put it to work. And there is risk involved in that. I don't know if you've ever invested money in anything. We have some people on the team that have invested in crypto and other people that invest in some safer things. But the reality is, is that every time you you give your money and you invest it, there's risk of going, I might lose this. And you also have to figure out what level of risk do I want to take? Do I want to take the crypto high risk and high reward? Or do I want to take a, a lower Lower reward, but lower risk. Anytime we are investing our money, there's a risk. Like, we could lose this. That I don't just have a guarantee that it's all going to be perfect and all work out. There's, there's not really a guarantee. There is risk involved. And when it's your own money, it's incredibly stressful. Because you're like, I, I, I would like that money. I want to keep that money. I just want more of it. But how much different is it when it's someone else's money that you're playing with? Like, I think a lot about this when it comes to what we've been given, certainly financial and just in terms of gifts, that uh, it's not ours. And so this fear that we have, like, what if I lose it? What if I is not a fear that we need to live in? Like, in this case, the, the gifts that the servants have been given... They aren't their gifts. It's not like it was like, take your silver and then invest it and then give me the profits. No, the king gave them the gift. And I want to remind those of us who are Jesus followers, your money isn't your own, your time isn't your own, and your gifts are not your own. Part of us coming under this king, under giving our life to Jesus, is saying, it's yours. Do with it what you want to do. I want you, and I know that you can do more with what I, what I have left over than I can by holding all of it on. That's with our money, that's with our time, and that's with our gifts. And so we're faced with a choice as Jesus followers. How am I going to respond to this gift that I have been given? Do I want to choose risk or fear? <laughs> and Like, there's a degree that both of those are kind of scary, like risk or fear. The reality is is that risk costs us. It costs us comfort. It costs us preferences. There are moments that when we step out and risk that we do things that we know are are beyond us and, and come at a cost to us. Living this life of taking risks with what God has given us is not an easier way, but it is a better way to live. It comes at great personal cost, and yet it is completely worth it. I was thinking about, for Lee and I, we've had so many moments where we are invited to choose risk or fear. Part of the reason that we're here at Collective Church is because of one of those moments and subsequent choices along the way. Because Lee and I were living in Calgary. We're from around here. We're living in Calgary. I had a stable job. She had a stable job. I was working at a church, and, and things were reasonably good. And yet we felt this profound sense of going, God's saying, I want you to plant a church. Now, if you know anything about planting a church, there is no guarantee, zero And so we had two little kids, and we're going, okay, we're going to move across the country with no guarantee, and yet we felt like God was asking us to do that. We felt like God had given us some gifts and opportunities and said, I want you to do what I'm asking you to do. But 
I would be a liar if I didn't tell you that at many, 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 many moments, I went, I think I want to live out of fear rather than stepping out in risk and trusting God. There were multiple moments that I was like, what are we doing? Like, I remember talking to Lee and going like, God asked us to do this, right? And she's like, yep. I'm like, you're sure, right? She's like, yep. I go, okay. And you continue to, to step out. And, and, and there were lots of places where I, we could have looked and went, like, we, we navigated living on one single income for the better part of a year. I didn't get paid at all. And we lived in my mom's basement, okay, with two kids. So in your 30s, with two kids living in your mom's basement. Not an ideal situation. And, and so there was this personal cost, and yet there was also this driving sense of God has invited us into something more, and we want to risk for his sake. Like we want to do what he's asking us to do. And there have been many times even since then, navigating all that we've navigated, where we're faced, I'm faced with the choice. Do I want to step out and risk and do what he's asking me to do with, with house money? Like the gifts that he's given me, the things that he's given us, or do I want to choose fear? As a church, we want to, we want to be a people that embraces risk. There was a message that I preached a, a while ago that was that we want to be risky for a reason. And for us, that reason is people. Like, we want to step out in boldness. Like, right now, there are over 100,000 people in London that don't, know, that don't know God. So there are many, many more, but over 100,000 people on the census said, I have no religious affiliation. And over 100,000 people in London live by themselves. So when we decided to, to move here and, and answer God's call to plant, some of it was driven by this reality that there are 100,000 people that aren't connected with the one who created them, and there are 100,000 people that aren't connected to each other. And you go, this is why we do what we're doing. If you're new to collective, this is our why. This is what drives us forward. We want to risk. We want to step into moments that God is asking us because people matter. And it's so easy for us to live in fear, and fear just makes it about me. And I go, I'm afraid, and I don't have what it takes. I feel that all the time. I don't have what it takes. That's the beauty of living in God's kingdom and living our life, because we go, I don't have what it takes, but I know that you do. We choose risk or we choose fear. People matter far too much for us to let fear be the driver and decision maker of everything that we do. So the two servants choose risk while the other servant chose fear. And it's interesting even when you see the, the man that responded with fear, his vision or his view of, of this king was so distorted. He's like, I know you're a harsh man. Like you're angry with me and you, and you take things that weren't really yours. And he has this distorted view of the king. And because he has a distorted view of the king, a.k.a. Jesus, he misses out. And I don't know what it's been like for you, but I think this can be us. Sometimes we can look at Jesus or we can look at God and have a distorted view, and it changes how we live. Like, we think God wants perfection from us. And if we can't be perfect, why even bother trying? We think that God is looking at us just waiting for us to screw up. 
Like God just wants to send the lightning bolt down and take us out because we messed up. Or we think God is going, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed in you. Like the dad that's just looking at his kid, shaking his head. We have this distorted view of God. And so fear can be the decision because we go, I don't know if I really trust that he cares and he loves me. I think fear seems to be a better way. I just want to let you know that that lie, and it, that is, it is a lie and it is completely destructive. That that is not how God is experiencing things. That is not how Jesus is looking at us. He is not setting us up for failure. He's not looking at us going, well, you're going to screw it up anyway, so why even bother trying? That is not who God is. He's cheering us on and he's inviting us to live in a life that experiences more. He's inviting us to, to make a decision with what we've been given. And I think it's important for us to, to use this to reframe success, to go, okay, what does it look like for me not to waste my life? To reframe success. Because we do, we are told by the world that success is how you appear, success is results, success is all the external affirmation that you did what you were supposed to do. But is that how God sees it? Is that how Jesus sees it? No. Success, like he mentioned in the story, is faithfulness. Success is doing what he asks us to do. He was not angry at the servant because he didn't do anything, he, he didn't get a result. He was angry because the guy didn't do anything with what he was given. He just hid it and buried it and went, well, I guess that's it. The king had said, I want you to take this and invest it. But God's not looking at you and saying, if you invest it, I expect you better 10x my investment. He's looking at you going, will you do what I ask you to do? And then trust the results will come. Trust that I'm in charge of results anyway. There are biblical characters that did everything that God asked them to do and yet look like failures. And yet we read about them 2,000 plus years later. The invitation for us is to do what God asks us to do. It means that we actually get to take the weight off of our, our backs. We don't need to worry about trying to live up to some other standard. Like we don't look at other people and go, am I doing enough? Do they think I'm doing enough? Instead, we look at, we look at Jesus and we say, am I doing what you asked me to do? Am I measuring up to what you are inviting me into? And all along the way, at least this has been my experience, I'm going, I, I'm trying my best, and I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. And he goes, yeah, keep coming. Like, I think about my kids as they're stepping out and they're trying something. Like, there's a, there's a tree in behind here, and we walk down it, and it, it, it's this beautiful tree that goes on a 45-degree angle that kids can walk up. And, and I was helping Ava to go on. And it's not like I'm helping her on that tree, and, I'm, and if she falls, I go, wow, you suck. Right? What am I doing? I'm like, you can do it. Keep going. Keep going. I'm right here. I'm with you. And yet, how many times do we have this distorted view of God that he's asking us to do something and he's really looking at us going, but you won't do it anyway and you can't. That's not how God sees us. Like we sing a song every once in a while about God being a good father. And so many of us go, yeah, in word only. 
But this is the experience. He's looking at his kids going, do what I ask you to do. Come with me. I'm going to walk with you. You are only responsible for doing exactly what Jesus asks you to do. You are a servant responsible for serving. Whether it's glamorous or not, you are responsible for responding to where Jesus is inviting you into. You are not defined by the results of your life. You are defined by the proximity to Jesus. You are defined by how closely you walk with him and step by step with him. Even when it's barely, it looks like nothing from the outside and you continue to respond and do what he's asking you to do. I don't know if you've, if you've paid attention, but uh, we are in a hyper-individualistic culture. Me, 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 I, I, I. It's very self-focused. It's very self-driven. It's very much about me. But the invitation that God gives us is that he has plans and purposes for us. And so what we do is we go, I'm going to figure it out on my own. What are God's plans and purposes for me? i got to get away, and I need to figure this out by myself. But that is not the design that God gives us. There is a component that we need to be thinking about me, but in the context of we, in the context of community is when we actually get to figure out, okay, what are God's plans and purposes? Because we can say that. So I can tell you, I felt very, very, very clearly, Lee and I both, even in moments that I second-guessed it, that God was asking us to plan a church. And you might be going, I'm not sure what God is asking me to do. And so you might even go, I'm, i got to figure it out by myself, so I'm going to get away. I'm going to get some quiet space, or I'm going to do a retreat, or I'm going to drive until there's no cell phone reception, and I'm going to hope that God speaks, and maybe he will. But where God best speaks to plans and purposes are in the context of community, people, people that are around us, people that are willing to walk with us as we stumble and try to figure out, okay, I think maybe he's asking, what do you guys think? And going, I think he is, or I don't think he's saying that. We have people around us that care about us or learning to, to, to discern what God is saying together. It happens in the context of community. There is a component of, of by yourself, but there is a far larger component that we have lost of people around us. In the church, we talk a lot about our personal relationship with Jesus, and that's an important distinction. But if you were to look at the early church, it was very much a communal relationship with Jesus. It was a both and. And some of us, we struggle to go, what, what is God's plans? What are God's purposes for me? Because we're trying to live our life by ourselves. If we're part of one body, it means that God wants to do things and speak through each one of us to guide the body as a whole. We want to surround ourselves with a group of people that are willing to identify God's plans and purposes and are also willing to identify these are your gifts. Because you might even be wondering, okay, so there's the financial gifts and then there's the wiring, talents, uniqueness, gifts. How do I know what those are? Like, how do I figure out what I am uniquely gifted? How do I figure out what God has given me as a 
gift. There are things that for those of us who would call ourselves Jesus followers, that we do uncommonly well, that are unique to us. And the thing is, we do them uncommonly well, and we don't really know it, because it just comes really naturally to us. We're like, well, that's just what you do. And if we're in community, other people go, um, that's not normal. Like in like the most loving way possible, like you're uh, the best kind of weirdo. Because what you're doing, that's not easy for people. And you're like, well, I don't know, that's just, that's, just, that's just what you do. And it's like, no, that's a gift that God has given you. There's something unique in you, and the beauty of community is we can call that out with each other. We can go, it's not normal to be able to do that. This is a unique thing that God has given you. And the problem, especially in the North American church, is we glorify certain giftings. So we go, okay, the gifting of the person who can speak or maybe even lead worship. And, but that's, that's about it. There are all these other beautiful gifts that are essential, essential to the church. And I would say even more important, there are people that are gifted in connecting with people. Like gifted in a way that when you talk to them, I've been around people that are trying too hard, that are like, tell me your deepest, darkest secrets. And you're like, I don't want to. I don't want to. And then you talk about other people that you just feel like, I feel at ease with that person. I feel like I can just be myself. That's gifting. You ever heard someone who's gifted with prayer? And they pray and you're like, I don't sound like that. Like, I think God listens to you more than me. There are people that are gifted in prayer. There are people that are gifted in creativity. God is a creative God. He created the world from nothing with words. And, and sometimes in the Christian subculture, our creativity doesn't represent the creator. It's like, not great. And there are other people that go, I, I, I want to use my gifts in this way. And you see it. And they're like, I don't know. I just do that naturally. That's beautiful. All of us have unique things that we do uncommonly well. And we need people around us to see them, to call them out, to challenge us forward. But when we know our gifts and when we know where God is inviting us to go, just like the servants, we are tasked with a choice. Do I choose risk or fear? Am I going to take my uniqueness and I'm going to take what God has asked me to do? I'm going to do it or am I going to shrink back and go, no, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I don't have enough. I can't go where you're asking me to go. The two servants chose risk and the third servant chose fear. And the king was not happy. Verse 24, then turning to the others, standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. But master, they said, he already has 10 pounds. Yes, the king replied. And to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. We see here the principle that I think if you hung around kids that you'd hear the use it or lose it, right? Use it or lose it. We see this invitation here. You can use your gifts or lose your gifts. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, we find here that Jesus and God rewards us when we use what we've been given and he gives us more. 
Even in moments that we're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And he goes, well done, faithful servant. And he gives us even more. And he, and he strengthens us and he gives us gifts to continue to do what he's asking us to do. But for those of us that do nothing, we can actually lose some of the gifts that we've been given. And I, I was thinking about this a, a lot in terms, of, in terms of our muscles. If you think about how we use our muscles, if we stop using our muscles, they atrophy. And suddenly then you're, like, you're left with this atrophied muscle that doesn't function like it was supposed to. And unless you do a whole lot of physical therapy, that muscle remains weak. And I think that there's some of that here with our gifting, that when we use our gifting more, that God strengthens it. And when we don't use it, it's like we just put it and keep it there and then wonder why our arm doesn't work very well anymore. We're like, well, you know what, I don't really use that thing Oh, the thing that you are uncommonly good at, the thing that God uniquely designed you to do, you don't do that? No, because it's hard, and I'm afraid. And if we don't use it, then we lose it. I, I know that God is looking for people that are willing to do what he asks them to do. And God continues to give more. And, and honestly, I think... Anyone that I know that is walking in what God is asking them to do, you never feel adequate. It's never like you're like, oh man, I got this. You always feel stretched beyond what you can do. That's the beauty of it. You're reliant on God. But for other people, we miss out on that because we just go, I'll just keep it to myself. You have been given gifts, not to bury out of fear, but to use and risk. And so Jesus is speaking to us, and he's giving us this picture of how not to waste our lives, how not to waste the, the gifts, how not to waste away. I want so much more for us as collective and as its many parts. I've been fascinated lately by reading stories of revival and renewal, looking at times in the past where God moved powerfully in the church and through the church to, to do things that they could not do by themselves. And there are some interesting parts that when you look at, you look at some of those moves in history that you see that are, that are massive. One of them is this shifting from it being about people that are consuming to people that are contending. It's this shift of going... Is this about just uh, what I get, or is it about a group of people that are willing to fight for what God wants? There is an author named Mark Sayers, and he talks about this moving from consuming to contending, this shift that can happen, and it will need to happen in order for there to be renewal in the church. And a big part of this is people that are willing to contend in prayer, that are willing not to just be recipients of God's goodness, but are willing to pray and stand in the gap for others, that are willing to contend for people. I was looking up contending, and, and, and one of the definitions was to struggle and work against difficulties to take ground. Struggle and work against difficulties to take ground. This is the invitation that we have to use our gifts to work against difficulties, to take ground, to actually go where, where God wants us to go and reach people that aren't currently being 
reached. And in order to do that, we can't simply spectate. We can't take our gift and bury it in the ground and watch other people use their gifts and see a return on investment and then benefit from some of that. We are called to get in the game, to actually get involved. And I think about that for as a church. This is why as a church we can't be built around a couple people. Like the beautiful thing is that we have this amazing team and we have all these people using their giftings and many of them no one sees. We have our prayer team that is gathering before the service and praying during the service that are contending for this space and for the ground that each of us will take as we leave. We have our kids team that is contending for our kids and teaching them what it actually means to follow Jesus, not just do children's programming, but asking them to identify what's God given you and what's God asking you to do. We have people that are behind this door in the most hideous room with fake grapes on the ceiling that are doing production, that are making sure that all the things fall into place. Why? Because we as a team work together to contend for people. There are people that are watching online. There are people that will watch online. And because of their effort, there are people that will hear about Jesus. All of us working together. The days of it just being a church built around one or two people are gone. I want nothing to do with that. I want to be the church that is built around the gifts of everyone. Like, can you imagine if all of us use our unique gifts and work together? I think we could actually put a a little dent in the 100,000 people that don't yet know Jesus. Can you imagine if as churches we worked together and saw one church, one church, and saw people coming to faith, contending for ground, taking a stand, willing to face difficult things for the sake of people. We are invited to embrace the risk. And in the same way that you can, you can lose that gift, you can also grow in it. There's this passage in 2 Timothy 1.6 And it says, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. Fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. This is Paul who wrote a a good chunk of the New Testament. He's writing to Timothy, this younger guy, and he's reminding him that that there's something significant that happens as we lay our hands on people and pray for them, that it fans into flame the gift that he's been given. I love grilling. I have a charcoal grill. And if you haven't had charcoal, something cooked on charcoal, you need to try it or come over. It would be my gift. Because I'm like, it's so much better. It just tastes better. Eric, who's leads production, he has a big green egg, which also uses charcoal, which kind of counts. But mine is like, (laughs) mine is like a budget setup. Mine is a budget setup. His is like fancy, right? It's fancy. Mine is like a, just a circular container. And part of what you have to do is you have to get the, the charcoal burning. And you start a fire, and then I use this to fan into flames the embers to get them hot enough 
that then I can pour them on unlit charcoal to bring heat and change the meat that I'm cooking. I think about that when it comes to our faith, that we are responsible as Christians to lay hands on each other and to fan into flames the embers that are there to see fire come out of and then end up on other people where they can experience who God is. This is the invitation that Timothy is given by Paul. And so one of the pieces of that that, that I do want to let you know about is we have a prayer team that would, love, that would love during this next song or after the service to pray for you, to lay their hands on you and to fan into flames the gift that you've been given. Maybe you're going, I don't know what the gift is, and maybe they can help you. Or maybe you know what the gift is, but you need, some, you need it to be fanned into flame. They would love to pray for you. We don't want to be passive spectators, We don't want to just go, hey, you all have a gift, so uh, figure it out, good luck. Like some of us in here, you're going, I know I have a gift, and I'm not sure how to use it. We want to stand with you and go, God, what are you asking us to do? What does it look like for us to discern together? We want to pray for you. But I want to remind you with this gift that you've been given, that you were invited to fan into flame, to choose risk over fear. I want to remind you that success is not if it all works. Success is not if you have the gift of evangelism and you go up to strangers and you go, "Uh, have you met my friend Jesus? And they go, no, but I'd like to. That's not success. Success is do you go to the person that is looking for Jesus and tell them about him? Success is not if your prayer sounds perfect. Success is if you are praying. Success is not if everything works out. Success is if you are faithful to what God is asking you to do. And so the reflection that I have for you, the thing that I want you to ask God, God, what have you given me? What have you given me? And then I want you to ask yourself, what am I going to do about it? What have you given me and what am I going to do about it? If we live like that as Christians... And every single day, we start even our day by going, God, what have you given me? And how am I going to use it? How do you want me to use it? I just imagine what that would do for our area, our neighborhood, our families, our friendships. Because people would not see a couple people exercising their gifts for an hour on a Sunday. They would see the church mobilized to be the hands and the feet that God wants. They would come to faith because of each of you using your gifts. I want to encourage you, don't waste your life. Don't waste your gifts. But now is the time to move from talk to action. I think this is a unique moment we're in as the church in North America and certainly for us as collective. I think the time for us to talk about what we think we should do is gone. But the opportunity to step into the action that God wants us to take, the move that God wants us to to make, the areas he wants us to go is here. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your gifts. God has plans and purposes for you. He has uniquely designed you, and we would love to be part of helping you to discover what that looks like. I want to I invite you to stand up. And I, I'd love to pray for us as we, 
as we respond in worship. But I want to remind you before I do that the prayer team will be at the back near the curtains and they would love to pray for you, lay hands on you, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. I, I, maybe I'll even invite you if you're, if you're in the room, just close your eyes. If, if you're here and, and you're going, God, I, I need you just to, I need you to, to show me and help me you could even just put out your hands and respond. Put out your hands like you're receiving a gift. Just in posture. I think it's important for us sometimes to respond with our bodies to say, God, help me to see what you've given me and help me to know what you want me to do about it. And I want to pray for us. God, I am so grateful that you have given each one of us a gift, that you give us gifts and unique contributions. Help us to respond with risk and not fear, to see that you care about people too much to leave us where we are and you invite us forward to rely on you. God, you've given us something and you are inviting us to use it. God, help us to know what our unique gift is. Help us to be bold and speak to others and let our community speak into our lives. God, help us to discover together what you are asking us to do and have the boldness to step out and do it. May we move from being simple consumers and spectators to instead contenders to take ground for you. God, send us, use us. We need you. And the many people around us that don't yet know you need you. Let us be part of the story that you are writing. God, we love you. We need you. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like more information on Collective Church, find us on social media at This Is Collective Church or reach us on our website, collectivechurch.ca. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you Sunday.